Hello, this is John Huary, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. For this episode, I met with Wendy Guerin, the president and CEO of the Ralph M. Parsons Foundation, who is innovating the way foundations give grants and engage grantees in their communities. Meeting at the California Endowment in Los Angeles, a complex that provides an effective collaborative space for the local nonprofit community, Wendy shared her experience of working with LA's foster care system and the importance of collaboration to achieve real and lasting impact. We're sitting here uh, pretty much at the heart of downtown Los Angeles, just a few steps away from the Civic Center where you have the county seat, you have Los Angeles City Hall, and this is a community here about collaboration and people being proximate to with each other in order to get things done as best they can to serve the community. And theoretically, that same ecosystem should exist just a few steps away at our Civic Center. Um, but I know that it's sometimes there's challenge in government, and I know that you have spent some time trying to be that bridge. And so it's really great that we're sitting here to think about this ecosystem of community change makers and its relationship to the community of change makers that exists in our civic systems. So I thought maybe we could talk about a little bit about the role of government in communities and the balance between philanthropic support and government support and how you get involved as a philanthropic leader in government. Well, you know, the first thing I would say is that uh, the philanthropy that I represent is private money for the public good. So it's different because it is private. You know, our board gets to decide how it would like to make its investments. And, you know, sometimes people feel that uh, they would like to control how philanthropy spends its money, that they could do it better. Or, but that would it's, it'd be like kill the golden goose. It, you know, if, you may, if you start to try to assume ownership of it, uh, people will stop doing it. it. It really is private money for the public good. And I think the reason that we're now trying to engage more directly uh, for example, with the County of Los Angeles, is because if our foundation exists for the well-being of Angelenos, we want to make better lives for the people of Los Angeles, particularly those who are poor or left out or disadvantaged, young children. Um, all the philanthropic money, all added up together, all donations in LA, I think, come to $2 billion a year, and county government is $30 billion a year. And then if you think of the GDP of the county as a whole, we're like budget dust right. philanthropy. So w what I will say is, uh, why do we want to work with government? Well, because they're the deliverer of key services to the people we care about, either through contracts or directly. So if we want to affect the lives in a positive way of kids in foster care, and we, if we do that without having any contact with the county, uh, we might not do harm, but we probably won't do that much good. You know, increasingly we're drawn to work collaboratively with the county because the county recognizes that it could use, it could do better. There could be systems change, right. but they need help in doing that. They're like, they're like fighting fires on the front end and they can't be up in the balcony kind of looking at the system and thinking, gee, why do we do that? We could do it this way. So I think that's what drives us. It's, it's a desire for impact. So is this always, I mean, you've been in this space for a long time. Is this, how did you come to this point? I think that we, you know, I, I helped chair a conference in 
oh, I don't know, maybe 92. Okay. The year that the Autry opened, and whenever that was. And it was a conference on collaboration, right. a philanthropic collaboration. And, and, you know, really we were talking it, but we weren't doing it. Right. Maybe part of it is the 2008 financial crisis. Right. Um, maybe it was just that it took a long time for people to develop relationships. Maybe it was that the, the, the sort of the theory behind it. Uh, uh, b behind collaborating. Right. You know, this idea of wicked problems require collective impact. The idea of collective impact is you can't stay in your silo. You've got to reach out to people from across many different parts of civil society to make an impact. And it's only when you can knit those together that I think you can actually drive change. So let's, let's, we've talked a little bit, I mean, a lot about theory right here. Great terms, and I'm gonna come back to collective impact and wicked problems, but let's, let's put it in context. Let's talk about LA County. For those who aren't familiar with the, for instance, the foster system here, uh, give us a picture of what it looks like. We're in a county of 10 million people, generally. Of that 10 million, how many people are affected by the foster kids system? Well, you know, the, the data around, uh, around child welfare is, um, you know, the whole point of the child welfare system, the foster care system, is to keep kids safe. Right. It's not necessarily to promote optimal outcomes, but it's to keep kids safe. And, you know, we, so LA County gets over 200,000 hotline calls a year. That, and they're mostly mandated reporters, pediatricians, teachers. Uh, it's, it's rarely the neighbor or the person trying to get their spouse in trouble because they're fighting over custody. Right. It is mostly um, good, you know, people who are doing what they're supposed to do. And then the county has to sort that out right. and try to keep these kids safe uh, and triage this information. Um, it's like the county is the parent of last resort. So there are 35,000 kids in LA County that are served that are system-involved kids in uh, the Department of Children and Family Services. I mean, they're under care of the, the county. The, the county is responsible for them. That that they're either placed with relatives or they are placed with what sometimes people call stranger care, which I think of as uh, the heroes right. of the community that step up to take a child into their homes uh, that they didn't know that they might not adopt. Uh, that they're there for for a while because 80% of all children are ultimately re returned to their parents. Wow. So, you know, my view is it, you know, th this is an area where we all could do better. Um, you know, when a child is in six to eight placements by the time they're 12 years old, you know, we are creating really damaged kids, damaged by uh, adverse experiences of childhood that are going to have a hard time later in life. And so it is, you know, child advocates will say, you can pay now or you can pay later. Um, and we think investing in those early years and trying to get outcomes for these, uh, the most fragile kids is just smart. You know, knowing your bio and having mentioned in the beginning, you know, you started your career in yep. the child, early childhood space. And now you're, I don't want to say come full circle because you're nowhere near being done with the work you're doing. But the idea that has that experience back then in the 80s mm -hmm. informed this sort of the work project. now. Yeah, the, the yeah work I now. think it absolutely has. The other thing I would say is the timing is everything and the science is there now. Right. And before the science wasn't there, it, we thought it mattered to, you know, talk with kids. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't just say yes or no to a child. You engage them in right. full sentences. Right. You try to have as much dialogue with your child 
as possible. And not, you know, people aren't born knowing how to be parents. And, but we thought we knew what was right. And then it turns out we got the data first around brain science, that the first five years, brain, uh, you know, uh, it, the interaction really matters because the brain architecture is being formed. And uh, kids are just a hotbed of growth. And if we don't do it right then, it's going to be very hard to remediate later. Then we also found out about adverse experiences, and this was a big Kaiser study of 17,000 people, and uh, of actually middle class people. And it turned out that if you experience more than four adverse experiences in early childhood, experiences like divorce, a death of a parent, a parent going to prison, uh, physical traumas, see, you know, it's a list of right. horrors. Right. They actually impact us, and they impact us in an epigenetic way. And what that means is later on, you won't have as long a life. You're more susceptible to stroke. The data is not just about uh, we're not producing kids that are competent and ready to deal with life, but we're actually uh, shortening people's lives. And so now we've got all this science behind us to do the right thing for kids. and. It's a slow road, but, um, but we think uh, that we can change both the way government and nonprofits uh, make these investments to get better outcomes. So you have this knowledge based on your previous experience, your interest. Did you go to the county and say, we can do something together? Did the county come to you and say, help, we need help? No, I think the newspaper covered a child death. You know, five years ago, there was a child that died up in the Antelope Valley. His name was Gabriel Fernandez. And uh, uh, the, the newspaper tracked the death of that child in an obsessive way. And so this death of a child was catalytic in that it was a horrifying saga of, uh, of governmental failure to protect a child. That we, this, should, this child should not have died. Uh, we, we knew there were problems there and uh, in a, in a uh, shocking way. And so uh, as the community then pushed the Board of Supervisors into commissioning a Blue Ribbon Commission. When you say, I'm going to stop you there and say, when you say community, what's the community in this case? I, I think um, people who care about kids. So for example, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name, which is embarrassing, but she... <laughs> Uh, she ran the county art museum, and she was a, a muckety muck at um, at UCLA. She was very close to Zev Yaroslavsky. She died of cancer, and and she like was like a dog with a bone. She just Zev, you've got we've got to have this commission. We've got you know we this child died. We need accountability. We need oversight. We need a blue ribbon commission to focus. On. So a lot of people were hammering on the board who didn't really want to do this. But between the newspaper and I think being uh, pummeled by people they respected and, that's the and key. cared about by people yeah. who were donors by people uh, people with influence yeah uh, you know, may not have been, and, and would it have maybe not even been their issue it's just it was an important humanitarian oh issue. yeah I think it, it absolutely that people um, were shocked right. and and felt compelled to say something so the board spent money uh, by by staffing a commission which took hearings over a year and then came up with a, a report recommending 45 different things the county could do or something like that. And, um, and Eileen Adams uh, was one of the people staffing that commission and she came and talked to philanthropy about it. And it was at, one of the, at that meeting where uh, collectively philanthropy said, 
um, okay, we're well informed, what are we gonna do about it? And um, what we did was for the first time ever use our voices collectively. We wrote a letter to the Board of Supervisors. For the first collectively, time ever? ever. Uh, and were you sitting around together because that's what you do, or was there a reason for it? was an educational uh, program that was telling us, we were, it was giving us, this is the latest of what's going on in the crisis in foster care. Gotcha. And um, you know, a lot of us make grants in this area. Mm -hmm. So instead of just passively making grants, uh, we did something that was harder. Uh, we, we exercised an influence muscle wow. that we didn't even really know we had. And we wrote this letter, and a bunch of us signed the letter, a bunch of local foundations, totally outside of our comfort zone. And, um, and then went and testified before the board. And the board, we were told that raising our voices on behalf of the commission's uh, recommendations mattered. Uh, they knew who we were. They adopted the recommendations. And, and, it, and it hadn't been something you had done before. So never. It was, like, it was a place where it's like, well, if they're involved, yeah. we should pay attention. Yes, it helped. It helped, and I think it uh, it helped philanthropy feel that collectively we could matter, and it encouraged us to work more collaboratively, particularly in this area. And then that led to the creation of this Office of Strategic Partnership within the county. And let's let's pause there. I want to get back to the office in a moment, but usually I think people look at philanthropy as the ones who people come to with a request, and philanthropy sits on high yes. and decides you are worthy or you are not or in, in nicer terms, but they yes. make decisions. There has to be decisions made. Right. Even if you're giving 300 grants a year, there's probably 10,000 grants that you could be giving if you had unlimited resources. So in this role reversal, it pushed you out of your comfort zone, as you said. Did, was there collateral damage to that? Does that make you vulnerable in other ways? I think it can be, but in this case, no. Okay. Um, in, in this case, no, really no damage. And more, it's presenting opportunities to people. Um, we're passionate about this. We see an opportunity. Would you like to join us? Um, and, and it puts us in the role of not just convening, but sort of curating uh, people to, something you do, I know, uh, bringing people together to share uh, background and then, and then do work together. Right. It's, you know, if it's just about learning, it's not enough. It needs to be about action. And I think we've made, it, it isn't, you know, I, you're right about the bulk of our grant making is kind of transactional. Uh, people come to us with their best ideas or their need for general support. They make their case, we look at it, we either say yes or no. This other work that we do, whether it's the nonprofit sustainability initiative or our leadership work or um, um, the, the, this proactive work like the collective impact work in child welfare, uh, I would say that we're, that's at the margins. In other words, the foundation remains true to its uh, basic mission of listening deeply and trying to make smart investments in what the community brings us. But then at the margins, we're doing something else. And you know, whether you want to call it leading, um, it's certainly it's trying to set the stage and build trust and relationships and figure out ways we can act together. But it's slow. It's, it's the, the problem with it is it, it takes time. So you can't be in a hurry to get it done and you've got to figure out where, I think about as the Venn diagram, where is the common interest of everyone that we can give something up because we know we can focus on the common interest. And, and that's where I think we're 
I think we're poised for some impact. You were mentioning that you came together as a group and said, we wrote a letter, you testified, you said, we need to do something uh, and create this office. So describe what yeah. happened there. And um, the county did a number of things, um, you know, executing on the recommendations. Um, they set up an office of child protection. Um, and then they also agreed, uh, it was really with the leadership of the Weingart Foundation and Parsons at the table with the county, um, emulating what had been done earlier uh, under Mayor Villaraigosa. There was an office of partnership in his, uh, it, it, under his administration that did Angeles. not persist in the city of Los right. Angeles under the next mayor. And actually, you know, we focus on the city all the time as the shiny object, uh, but, it, but if you really think about people's lives and their well-being, uh, it's, the game is the county. It's all about the county. Um, that's where all the money comes through, whether it's you know uh, uh, welfare dollars, job training dollars, foster care dollars, the county is the big player. And so uh, we thought, well, we could recreate that office at the county and the county agreed and we did it as a, uh, really as a pilot. Um, let's try this for three years. And philanthropy, a group of 12 foundations, I think it was, uh, scraped together the money for half of it, and then the county paid the other half. And we did this uh, experiment, and um, we've had outcomes. Uh, the office has raised over $4 million to make investments in, in shared priorities. But I think more than that, it's creating a mechanism for there to be less siloing and more dialogue, and not just among the private sector with the county, but among the various county departments. You know, what magic can you do if you can get the Department of Children and Family Services working with the Department of Mental Health? <laughs> with private money to help facilitate. And those looking from the outside, so that makes perfect sense, but if you're in the system... Very hard to do. Very hard to do. And I think we also can help, in a way, this may not be the most political way of saying it, but I think we can help give cover to the county. Um, you know, it's hard for the county to do things different, or to even execute a grant in less than two years. Right. And when we join with them, it can make things much faster and it can make them willing to do things that are a little different. And so how long has this all been going on? This we're just about three years. And what does the next two, three years look like? Do, does foundations slowly make an exit and allow the county to run this office? Or are you there hand in hand? No, the, I, I would say that we're out of the, of the business of funding the office, okay. but hopefully way into funding the work that um, that will flow. So I, I think that's where we stand. And I think there's also a tremendous opportunity uh, to look nationally. You know, we don't get enough, na you know, it's like we are always cranky. We don't get enough money from Sacramento. <laughs> right. uh, we don't. Um, we don't get enough national philanthropic money invested here either. And it's because they don't have their boots on the ground. And we think that if we share our successes and provide, here's an opportunity that we can entice uh, some of that money to come here to help uh, scale up uh, this work. So, so I, I mean, I know the answer, <clears throat> so I'm going to ask the question. This is a model that could work in any level of government with the private sector and foundations together. What's the piece of advice that you give a smaller community in California, in Minnesota, in New York? What, how can they learn from this experiment that has been going on for a couple of years here in Los Angeles? That's a good question. You know, part of it requires 
trust and relationships. And so I think that we were able to do this um, was because uh, the, the chief aide to, uh, to uh, Supervisor Kuehl uh, had run a foundation, had run Liberty Hill, and, and she was the first person in Villaraigosa's office running. The, so they had life experience. They knew both philanthropy and government, and, and then followed by Eileen. So we had, um, we had people on the government side who were more open-minded than you would typically find because they'd had multi-sector experience. How do we help government be open-minded? Well, I, I... If they don't have the experience. You know, I think part of it can be uh, things like FuseCore. Um, there's a group that. called Foster America. Okay. These are groups that bring in mid-career fellows with uh, life experience outside of government uh, to come in to be change agents inside government. So, I, great, fresh eyes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good... You got to be open to it, though, and I know that sometimes government has a hard time being open to new ideas or outside perspectives. Yeah, I, I think you know part of this is you got to elect the right people, <laughs> and um, I think we're very fortunate in Los Angeles right now in that we have uh, it's a small board; it's only five people running the county, um, incredibly powerful, and they really want to do better. I, I think they genuinely want reform. Now, it's, it's one thing to want it, it's another thing to do it. And, uh, but, but I believe we're gonna make, I believe we're making headway. So what's next? If you look at this uh, area on the edge of your transactional, quote, transactional grant making, mm -hmm. what's the next project that's, that's looming that you think philanthropy needs to start to pay attention to or get roll up its sleeves with that mirrors this work in uh, the foster Great system? Foster. Well. You know, obviously, uh, we're consumed with the homelessness crisis, and um, and there are, you know, uh, certainly, you know, there are philanthropies that we could name um, that have made this central to their grant making. I think every Angelino needs to care. Um, it, it, it's, you know, that it's an even more complicated, wicked problem. Absolutely. Um, very challenging. But you know, I just was at um, SciArc for a site visit, which is. Uh, one of the 10 best architecture schools in the country um, and we're lucky that it's here it's very creative they they kind of pride themselves on being radical arch disruptive architects um, and they're doing a charrette a student uh, uh, thing where they lay the make the kids work really really hard um, around homelessness and um, can they create for example there's some group in Mexico that can build a unit uh, for ten thousand dollars five hundred square feet and we could truck them in for ten thousand we need to uh, we need creativity because what we can't afford is to build units that cost five hundred thousand dollars to house one person that's just a not starter there isn't enough money to do it is yeah. there something that we haven't hasn't really come to the surface that you're keeping an eye on well I, I was excited when I heard the Bloomberg uh, Foundation was investing in this accessory dwelling unit mm. uh, model, which would help a homeowner build a unit in their yard, which is now permissible because of zoning change from Sacramento, uh, give them the money to build it, and then, uh, like a loan, mm -hmm. and if they provide housing to a homeless person for something like five years, uh, they've earned the right to keep the unit. <laughs> I think that's, that's clever, yeah. you know, and you, could, and you could get a lot more people housed. Right. Um, there's, it's tricky. But worth trying. So, so I'm looking for those kinds of creative ideas. 
And, and as, you, as you look at those creative ideas, those are sort of always stirring and you're thinking about and learning as you, where do you source that information? How do you, how do you get more information about issues or what's coming besides maybe through SoCal grant makers? Are there other uh, sources that you're using to keep up on the social issues that, are, that matter to you? Well, you know, it's funny. Years ago, we interacted with a, um, a Japanese automaker and, and their grant making staff. And they had a list of everything they read to stay current. And one of the things they read was good housekeeping and, <laughs> and the Reader's Digest. And I would say, I don't read Reader's Digest if it still is produced. Right. But I think you're, you know, I read three papers a day. I go to the Pacific Council meetings. I put myself out there to be exposed to information all of the time. And then I think most importantly, our team, uh, we site visit every grantee. We don't make a, it's not a paper process. It's a human process where we engage with people. We visit them on their turf. We, you know, we see how it smells. We meet the kids. We, and I think we're, we're there not to talk, but to listen. And so I think that's just really important that we're paying attention, we're respectfully listening. And you're on the ground. Yeah, we're asking people, yeah. help me understand. Because we're all generalists, we're not experts. And so uh, that gives us permission to ask uh, lots of, you know, help me understand questions. Before I go to our, our lightning round, I want to talk for a minute about the, uh, sustainab the nonprofit sustainability initiative. This is something that I admire. Um, I will uh, assert that there are probably too many nonprofits in most communities that a lot, and not, not for bad intention, just people have created uh, this model of nonprofit as a way to solve a problem and a lot of duplication. I'm probably saying things that you would say. You ha tell us about this initiative and why it's so important to you as a grant maker. Well, I think that we all recognize uh, that we, we deal with scarce resources. The scarcest resource is our time followed closely by money. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we looked at this, uh, we went, actually we, we went to a workshop. And we joked that we went to a workshop and it was uh, presented by UCLA's Luskin School. And it was uh, this guy, uh, David LaPiana, who's written the book on uh, nonprofit collaboration, mergers and acquisition. And we came out of that workshop thinking, really in talking to other foundations, and the, in this case it was the Community Foundation and Weingart, uh, we all thought an initiative was needed. We came away from that workshop thinking, oh my God, um, we need to help nonprofits develop a more robust toolkit. Uh, they need to have in their toolkit uh, concepts like, can we deeply collaborate? Could, we, could our back offices be the same back office? And, and oh my goodness, could we come together with someone else uh, to have more impact? So it's not driven by the idea of let's save money, it's driven by the idea of how can we have more impact. And we created a pool fund, uh, again about 14 foundations, uh, maybe three or four million dollars has been pooled, we've made over 70 grants to nonprofits and they come in uh, both their CEO and their board chair have to agree, and we'll pay for a coach, uh, really a, a facilitator, a business uh, uh, consultant, to help them examine how they might collaborate. Uh, because it, it can be emotional. Yes. 
Um, people have their identities wrapped up in their nonprofits, and sometimes they don't think as much about the mission as they do about themselves. And having an outsider to help them go through that can really help. And we've seen some incredible outcomes. I'll give an example. There was a group of uh, organizations that do, um, they go to probation camps to work with kids using the arts. It can be very transformative for kids who are locked up in probation camp to have access to this kind of uh, opportunity. But each of these programs was independently negotiating access to the camps and all of it. And it was very hard on probation and hard on them. They came together to talk about could they do better and they ended up creating an umbrella for all of the, these arts nonprofits. They grew it from six nonprofits to I think 12 who now have much more robust access to the population they want to serve and are improving in other ways. Um, and then in some cases, there have been um, charter schools that have merged or- Through uh, your program. Yes, yeah, just, so just some incredible and how does someone how does someone get into that? They have to be invited? No, uh, the, it's, the application is available on the Community Foundation's website and they simply- It's the California Community California Foundation. Foundation. And then it's managed by a team of the funders. And limited to LA- It's it, LA, LA non County nonprofits. Uh, the investment is about uh, up to about $40,000 for consulting assistance. And then once they've executed their plan, we'll also double down with implementation money. Wow. Because you may need your IT systems or stationary or right. websites All or the things that you know dealing with whatever the execution often costs money right so we're we're excited about what that's meant and it's part of a national movement we're not the only program doing this there are programs around the country that are very similar how, how do we tell nonprofits respecting their ego respecting the the passion they have to serve their community how do you help them see a new way well I, you know I, ha I think that through capacity building, um, one of the best nonprofits in town is called uh, the Nonprofit Finance Fund. And you know, I think every nonprofit should be trained by that agency on how to understand their financials. You know, not, just understanding you're running a business and what that means is so important. And it's, it's one of the weaker areas in our sector. And when someone says, I want to start a nonprofit, what do you say? Well, I don't want to tell uh, the person with the really brilliant idea. <laughs> like, I yeah, the joke that I use is, I would not want to have been the grant maker that told Wendy Kopp, don't create Teach for America. Because it went gangbusters. But mostly, People should look to who else is doing it and see if they can collaborate. And if they can't find a nonprofit that they can affiliate with, they ought to think about uh, working with a fiscal sponsor like Community Partners, which is housed here in this campus right. at the endowment, that literally exists to help organizations incubate. So they can test their idea out before they hire a lawyer, you know, drop. I mean, it's expensive it, to become a nonprofit. Absolutely. You have to have incorporation papers and blah, blah, blah. Why go through all that if you don't have to? And I think the last figure I saw in LA County alone, there's something like 35,000 nonprofit organizations. Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing. And, and we see this all across the country. Communities of 100,000 having 700 nonprofits. Well, and, and I will say, and I, I mean it with love, uh, that too many nonprofits are hobbies. 
and they're not real organizations. They don't have real fiduciary boards. In other words, boards that are behind them, responsible for their work. They're, they're almost independent practitioners in a cover of being a nonprofit. And doing good, you know, I'm not saying that often they're not doing really good things, but tons and tons of $50,000 a year organizations will not drive impact in Los Angeles. Well said. So I'm going to, we're wrapping up here and I want to go through our lightning round. I'm okay. going to ask you as many questions as I can with short answers from you uh, that are uh, about the work you've done and the work in the community. And we'll set a timer for 60 seconds sure. and see how well you can do. Um, there is no prize. The prize is that you completed the answers. Okay, good. Um, so we'll start and uh, here we go. Who's a leader who has influenced you in your work? Marion Wright Edelman. Great. What book has changed the way you think about your work in the community? Right now, I'm reading uh, The Deepest Well, which is about uh, childhood trauma. Uh, what's the best quality in a partner to achieve good collaboration? Authenticity and honesty. Nice. Uh, what advice do you have for someone trying to work with government? Be patient. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> What do nonprofits not understand about foundations and philanthropy? I actually think they understand us pretty well. Um, we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually think the community understands philanthropy pretty well. Um, you know, philanthropy prides itself on, on being snowflakes. You know, we're all snow, but we're really, really different. And there's a line, you know, you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation. Um, that is true, and I think that frustrates people, but, but that, that's just built into the DNA of we are private organizations for the public good and, you know, vive la difference. The more that we have diversity, the more likely they can find a fit. Um, what for-profit business, by name or characteristic, makes the best partner uh, to making impact? Sometimes it's the banks because, because they are required uh, by federal uh, guidance to do community investment yep. activities. And you know, businesses that give are the minority. Um, the, 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 all, in terms of charitable giving, businesses only make up 5% of the charitable giving in the United States. And um, there is less business giving than there used to be 30 years ago. It used to represent 10%. And then most of their giving is goods and not money. And so, you know, I, I want to kiss and hug and give praise to every one of them that does something. One last bonus question here. Um, what's the best career decision you ever made? Really, the best career decision I ever made was going to graduate school because it, it really gave me a, sort of a worldview, and I went to school in urban planning, and um, from the beginning, I knew that you had to work with others. And that's a great place to end, because the work that you do is about collaboration. It's working in communities. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Um, you do have deep community intelligence in this region, and I really look forward to seeing what's next from you and the work of the Parsons Foundation and the partners that you have collected and worked with. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence. And for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.